wow. Powerful testimony. Harmony, thank you for sharing that. Seriously. Thank you, worship team. Uh, we're in the presence of God. I just appreciate every week the worship team ushering us into yes. God's presence. And Andrew, are you sure you don't want to preach, man? After that, after that prayer. I got to get it in somewhere. Okay, okay. Man, it's so good to be here. Are you? Just thank God for this church. Amen. I always say, don't take this for granted. You know, God's doing something unique here, and it's not the case everywhere. And I just think it's. Really the result of so many of you uh, pressing into God and, and His favor coming on us. So praise God for that. And you know, today I'm excited. It's, uh, it's fall. It's my favorite time of the year. I love the fall uh, season. And uh, I know September 23rd is the official calendar date of fall. But I think when Starbucks starts pouring their pumpkin spice... <laughs> Come on, girl, come on. Uh, that is fall. When the pumpkin spice starts flowing September 1st, I just, I got my cup ready, and they fill it up. Uh, so anyway, it's good to, good to be here. Out, just out of curiosity, because I love fall. It's, you know, leaves are changing, and football starts today. Go Niners. Oh, I heard that. You know, so many cool things, bonfires, the s'mores, and all that. It's my favorite season, but I'd like to get a pulse to sort of see what is your favorite season okay. of the year. How many here would say the winter is my favorite season? I love to shovel snow. I love long, dark nights. Uh, darkness in the morning, okay? Yeah, slush and bitter cold. That's awesome. Okay. How many like spring? When it's just real sloppy and muddy and it's just kind of not really warm enough to do anything fun at all. Okay, so spring, summertime, anyone like summer? Hot, humid, sticky, nasty. Uh, how many like fall? Okay, it's like a people after my own heart here. That's awesome. The other cool thing about fall, uh, <clears throat> that i found over the years, it just seems like this season in the life of so many churches, is a, it's just a good season. Um, people are through vacationing, they're less distracted, they're focused. It's almost like the fall brings a new energy, and I think especially here at Antioch, there's a sense that this fall season, God is going to do something new. Yeah. We've been plowing, we've been cultivating the soil, we've been praying. And there's a sense that maybe this season God is going to spring up some fruit, some new growth, something in your life. I don't know what it'll look like, but I know that's what I'm praying for, and I pray you join me in that. And so over the last five weeks, we've been going through a series on the DNA of the church. It's called We the Church. And Andrew did five metaphors on the church, talked about the church as... Um, you know, the possession of God, the, the body of Christ, the people of God, the temple of God, the bride of Christ. First uh, Peter 2.19 says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. That is us. So we're a people. That word people in the Greek is laos, which really is where we get the word laity. So you are all the people, the laos of God, the laity of God. God is the head of this body. And we are called for a purpose. We're called to be priests. We're called to live on mission. We're the people of God. Mm -hmm. And my favorite definition of the church, 
It's kind of the essential ecclesiology. If you're to take the whole thing and just boil it down, what is the church? The church is a worshiping community on mission. That is the minimal, I call it the minimal ecclesiology. When you have worship and community and mission, the church is present. That's good. It can be as small as a few to as large as tens of thousands, but that worshiping community on mission is the DNA of the church. It's the DNA. Worship, community, mission. What is the mission? We spent some time talking about worship and community. The mission is to go and make disciples of all nations. And what's interesting is sometimes um, we think the church has a mission, but the reality is, just kind of stay with me here, the mission actually has a church. The church is actually the fruit of the mission. Maybe that doesn't sound that profound, but I just want you to think about this for a minute. The mission to go and make disciples brings fruit, and the fruit of that is the church. Yeah. But the church is not the mission. And sometimes we can think that sustaining the church is somehow the mission, but no, no, that's not it. It's actually the fruit of the mission God has called us to do. And churches get mixed up when they begin to make disciples, and all of a sudden people start to gather, and now the church is the mission. Yeah. Sustaining the church is the mission. But that's not the case. Jesus said he called us to make disciples, to seek, and to save the lost. So today we're going to move from the church to the kingdom, kind of the mission side of things, the broader perspective. Because like Andrew prayed, there's lots of churches around our community and in our world that we need to pray for. But we're all part of a collective movement, the mission of God. Building the kingdom of God. And wherever you see the kingdom of God start to spark and spread and revival begin to spread across a, a nation, a city, even a family, there's four things that happen. I call this kingdom DNA. And I told, uh, you know, Diego, seriously, you drew a double helix DNA with a kingdom on top of it? Like, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Like, I would never be able to do that. That's what that is, isn't it? So anyway, he's a lot smarter than I am. <laughs> Anytime you see the kingdom of God just like expanding and growing and just moving and revival starting to take place, renewal taking place, there's four marks, four strands of DNA that we find in all of this. Now, there's more than four and a lot of historians, scholars and kind of those that have seen movements throughout history have named about six or seven. But two or three of them have to do with the broader movement. These four have to do with you and me and what we need to think about together. That's why I'm wearing this shirt today because this is where it starts, right? It starts with these four things, and I'm going to share them with you. Write these down. Change lives, contagious faith, contending prayer, and charismatic renewal. People have an encounter with God that changes them. They then begin to have a contagiousness about them, a, a contagious faith about them that's coupled with contending prayer. That's not just, now I'll lay me down to sleep. That's struggling in prayer. Yes. Fervent prayer. 
on your knees in prayer. Like Harmony, you had some of these prayers, I'm assuming, when you were in that facility. Like, Lord, help me, deliver me, right? And then I have a confession, I needed another C, so I used the word charismatic. But the reality is, it's really more about a focus on the person and power of the Holy Spirit. That's really what we're talking about. And I just try to make it a little more memorable for you. But the reality is, in these revivals of God, there is a renewed focus on the Holy Spirit, the person of the Spirit of God, the power of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. And so that's kingdom DNA. And there's a great passage in Acts 4, so go ahead and turn there, Acts 4.1. Stand to your feet. We're going to read this, and we're going to trace it over the next two weeks. Acts chapter 4. Because in this chapter, you see all four of these strands of DNA, and it's really cool to watch, especially with Peter and John being the primary characters of the story. This is from the NIV, Acts chapter 4. Uh, we'll start in verse 1. The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put him in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men, not, excluded, not including women and children, but just the men, grew to about 5,000. So the next day, chief priests and others, they start to, you know, question Peter and John. They start to ask them all these things. Why are you doing this, etc., etc. And filled with the Spirit, Peter makes his bold defense. Go down to verse 11. Him and John are saying this. They say, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And then the two of them broke out that old Hillsong chorus, Christ alone, No, not that. Salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John, and when they realized that they're unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note. These men have been with Jesus. Yes. <laughs> These men have been with Jesus because something's different about them. Lord, I pray as we dive in this morning and next week, God, that you would begin to reveal to us some things in our own lives. That we begin to measure our own lives based on these four strands of DNA, these four marks of revival, not only personally, but corporately then when we gather May we be people, women and men, who others would say, I don't know what's different. I'm not sure why they're so bold. I don't know why their faith is so contagious. I don't know why they pray like they do. I'm not sure why they're so just focused in on the Spirit of God and His power and gifts. But one thing I do know, man, they, they've been with Jesus. They have been with Jesus, Lord. May that be the prayer for all of us when we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Peter and John had a contagious faith. Now, where did that come from? Their unschooled didn't come from their education. Their ordinary it didn't really come from their amazing status. It uh, wasn't their magnetic personality. Verse 13 says, these men had been with Jesus. And they had. 
they were fishermen, you know, they left their nets, they followed him, they, they gave a lot, they sacrificed a lot. Physically, they were with Jesus. But what's so interesting to me about their story is when you look at Peter and John, and Jesus rises from the dead, and he brings them on a mountainside, he's getting ready to ascend to the Father, and he gives them a mission, and he says, go and make disciples and all that. It's interesting, the last thing he says is not, so all right, time's a-wasting. We got to get moving out there. So get on after it and accomplish the mission. He doesn't say that. He gives them the mission, but then he tells them, what I want you to do now, I know there's a lot of need around you, but what I want you to do right now is this. Acts 1-4. I want you to, to go to Jerusalem, and I want you to leave Jerusalem. I actually want you to wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you've heard me speak about. I just want you to wait on the gift that my Father has promised. And so Luke 24 says, so filled with joy, they worshiped and they went back to Jerusalem, filled with joy, and they waited. The mission was all around them. I mean, they were like, okay, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the nation of Israel? To, I mean, is this like where we can actually fight the battle? Is this where we go after it? You're raised from the dead. Are you going to establish yourself as a king and everything else? No, actually, I want you to go to Jerusalem, and I want you to wait. So they go, and they wait. Day one, nothing. Day two, nothing. Day three, nothing. When do you start getting restless if you're the 120? Seriously. And Jesus said, go to Jerusalem, wait in this upper room, and just wait for the deal. It's just day three, nothing. Day four, nothing. Keep pressing in. Keep praying. Day five, nothing. Day six, nothing. Day seven, it's been one week of praying and contending in prayer in an upper room for the gift, waiting, just waiting for the gift. Day seven, nothing. Day eight, nothing. Day nine, nothing. What do you do? Keep persevering? Does your faith get shaky? Do you keep pressing in? Day 10, they wake up on day 10, early in the morning. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And this is where revival now begins. And that waiting is hard for us and, and the sort of lingering and waiting for God to show up and for him to change our life or empower us with his spirit. But we can't do it on our own. We have to have it. And so I wore the shirt again today because I want to just impress upon you that revival, of course, it starts with God, but it starts with us hungering after God enough and waiting in His presence long enough and being that hungry that 10 days later you would still be on your knees contending in prayer for God. If you want it that badly, it's amazing how God tends to show up in situations like that. So it's interesting, when I prioritize my time with Jesus, 
And when you prioritize your time with Jesus, and when you're in prayer, and I'm in prayer, and you're fasting, and I'm fasting, guess what happens when we come together collectively? It's like these firebrands that come together collectively. When revival is happening individually, and then it comes together collectively, and all of a sudden it ignites something great, and the manifest presence of God is felt. Right. And it's because all of us are doing our part. To usher in the revival of God by waiting and contending to say, Lord, God, I'm hungry for you, but I'm not going to leave until you fill me with your presence. Wow. That's really where it starts. Yeah. So good, John. And what's interesting in history, throughout history, and I'm going to share a bunch of stories in the next couple of weeks. So it's going to be history lesson and story time with John. Um, Andrew and I were talking a few weeks ago about some of the revivals throughout history and I wrote a series of articles on the greatest church planning movement in our nation's history, and I want to tell some stories from that to sort of illustrate this. Um, the greatest movement, and I know there's been a lot of things happening globally, even right now. God is doing some incredible things globally. But in our nation's history, the greatest church planning movement is by far the rise of early American Methodism, the guy by the name of Francis Asbury. But it started before that with George Whitfield and, and John Wesley. So I just want to share some stories illustrating the changed life of these men. Let me tell you a little bit about George Whitfield. Um, he's on the screen there. That's a pretty dope robe right there. I, you know, I, I gotta get me one of those. Uh, next, maybe next week I can do that. You know, we think about George Whitfield. He was the most prolific preacher, honestly, throughout history. I would say you could say that hands down. Um, he almost single-handedly ushered in the first great awakening in the in the colonies. I mean, you just look at this guy; it's like amazing. But when you read his story, it's crazy. He's the youngest kid of seven. Uh, born in England, his dad died at the age of two, and I didn't know this, I should have shown a picture, he was cross-eyed. He got made fun of in elementary school, in junior high, he was cross-eyed, little kid, his mom said he had a tender, a tender and weak composition. Somehow he overcame the obstacles of being made fun of his whole life, and then at 18, 1732, he entered Oxford University, and he connected with these guys, eight or nine of them, and they were made fun of. They called them Bible moths, Bible bigots, holy club. It was kind of like this derisive term, but this group of guys, they're just weird, like whacked out, you know? This Charles Wesley guy, and then John Wesley was like the moderator. They did some crazy stuff, super disciplined group, had lengthy devotions together, rose early, strove for discipline, took the sacrament daily, served the poor. And Whitfield just wanted to be a part of something different, something new, something that was going to maybe help him along. But he found out over time that trying to strive on your own, your own discipline and your own good works and all of that, he thought that was the pathway to heaven, but it left him super empty. It was like, I'm doing all this stuff, but I don't feel like God's presence is with me, and I don't sense that my life is any different, and what's the deal? It's kind of like when Jesus said in John 5, 39 to the Pharisees, you study the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. Yet you refuse to come to me. 
The Bible is not given so we can read the Bible. It's given so we can connect with God and have an experience with Him. And I had a, uh, a lunch with someone, and basically I said, the most important time of my day is my time with God. And he said, well, what's the most important part of your time with God? That's good. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. Uh, <laughs> the cat's out of the bag. Um, so Whitfield, not knowing what to do, but struggling with the fact that he is pursuing God through good works and reading the Bible and all of that, he realizes my soul is in a bad condition. I need God more. And so this is what he writes. A horrible dread and fearfulness overwhelmed my soul. God only knows how many nights I laid upon my bed, groaning under the weight I felt, bidding Satan to depart from me. Entire days and weeks I would lie, prostrate on, prostrate on the ground, not prostrate, prostrate on the ground, seeking God's presence and consolation. At 19, he stopped talking. Began wearing a passed gown and dirty shoes out of repentance, fasted from fruits and sweets, and determined through Lent to eat only bread and tea with no sugar. He prayed with strong crying and tears, desiring God's presence, and by Easter week he was too feeble to move. His physician confined him to a bed for seven weeks. He wasn't eating, he wasn't sleeping, and he continued to lay on the floor, begging God to show himself. This dude is hungry. For God had no one to instruct him, no one to show him, no one to lead him. He was just doing what he could. And finally, in utter desperation and in rejection of all self-trust, he wept and wailed, feeling danger of being cast into hell, not certain of God's presence. And while kneeling on that day, he had a breakthrough. The presence of God filled his room, and in that moment, he surrendered himself to the mercy of God through Jesus Christ, and a ray of faith assured him he would not be cast out. This is in his journal. He writes, Joy, joy unspeakable, my soul filled when the weight of sin went off. An abiding sense of the love of God broke in on my inconsolable soul. Surely it was a day to be in everlasting remembrance. My joys were like a springtide and overflowed the banks. His life was changed. You remember that moment when God broke through in your life? We need to remember our baptism. We need to remember that testimony. We need to remember those times in life when God has been faithful. But listen. George Whitfield, we can say, oh, come on, man, it's by grace you're saved. Why don't you just surrender to God? Why did you go after him that much? He was so hungry for God. John Wesley did a lot of great ministry before he actually encountered God. And in 1738 in May, he was listening to an open-air preacher, realizing he had never really encountered God, never really felt the presence of God. And he says, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone. He saved me from the law of sin and death. Hallelujah. They were not satisfied with empty religion. They were not satisfied to go to the Anglican church every Sunday and go through the rituals to come in to listen, to stand, to sing, to sit down, to hear a sermon, to take communion, to go out. They were not satisfied with that. They wanted the presence of God. Can I just tell you I've had seasons in my life where I get satisfied and just kind of lethargic 
And church is just like show up, go home, come back, show up, read the Bible, whatever. And I was like, God, give me a hunger for you. See, here's the deal. The branch's ability to bear fruit is completely dependent on the vine. But when you tie into the vine and have that changed life, there should actually be fruit. It should lead to a contagious faith. Changed lives should lead to a contagious faith. And I'm going to share a quote with you that honestly kind of revolutionized the way I thought about God and ministry and everything else. And I know I'm hyping this up pretty big, but this is, if you don't get anything else but this, I think this is worth the price of admission, okay? Um, whatever that is for you. St. Bernard of Clairvaux. The one who is wise, therefore, will see their life as more like a reservoir than a canal. The canal simultaneously pours out what it receives. The reservoir retains the water till it is filled, then discharges the overflow without loss to itself. That was profound to me anyway, but... Today, there are many in the church who act like canals. The reservoirs are far too rare. They want to pour forth before they have been filled. Mm -hmm. And that just struck me. I was leading a, a ministry, and I was finding that I was pouring out before I had been filled. Yeah. And I was leading as though it was sort of like... You know, Spirit of God moves, it comes out, then I go back to Him. Instead of lingering in His presence and letting that reservoir fill up and discharging the overflow. That's such a better way. That's such a better way. And that's where contagious faith comes. John 7, 37. Anyone who's thirsty, come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, Scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from you. If the first strand is a changed life, the second is contagious Faith and transform lives should be attractive. Yes. Yeah. Dang, I've been to some churches. I'm like, I would never come here. There is nothing attractive about it. Nobody's happy. Everybody's just kind of goes through the motions. No one's smiling. No one's friendly. Christians should be attractive. One of the things that hurts my soul right now in our culture is we're getting painted as something other than who God has called us to be, which is an attractive fragrance, the aroma of Christ. Attractive. I say it this way, we should live a questionable life. We should live a questionable life. I'm not saying morally questionable. Um, but we should live a life where people are like, why are you so happy? Wait a minute, hold on. You forgave them and they didn't even apologize to you? Help, help me understand here. Where do you find that kind of joy? Why are you still smiling? You're living a downwardly mobile life? Oh, see, I thought everybody else was moving upwardly mobile. Why are you living a downwardly mobile life? You've capped your income so you can just give away the rest of it? What? You just gave a car away to a single mom for free? Help me understand. The best evangelism is when people ask you the questions. Yes. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? If you got to always ask them the questions and they don't see anything different about your life, that's not evangelism. That's like interrogation. Nobody wants that. 
What if you lived the kind of life that was so contagious that people just said, I don't know why you live that way, but tell me a little bit more. And you say, well, it's Jesus. And then they go, man, because I really think that's attractive. Yes. I think that's how contagious faith should work. Yes. You can't muzzle it. You can't stop it. Acts 4, 18 through 20. This is really funny to me. They call Pete, uh, James and Peter in. And uh, <laughs> this is what they say to James and Peter. Or, I'm sorry, Peter and John. My bad. Get my disciples mixed up. But Peter and John. They call them in again. Verse 18. <laughs> and they commanded them, do not speak or teach it all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to listen to him? You be the judges. As for us, we can't help speaking about what we've seen and heard. Amen. I'm sorry. It's the overflow. And it's contagious. And 5,000 men believed. You know what I mean? 5,000. It grew to 5,000 when they shared. So let's go back to Whitfield. Uh, Whitfield found something. He carried this newfound zeal. He had this like excitement. He had this like something was different. You know, Wesley was probably like, George, dude, what just happened? George's like, man, I don't know. I was like totally like dying in my bed and prostrate on the ground. Dude, you're something's different about you. So George Whitfield was like 24 when Wesley was like 32. So Whitfield was kind of like a little brother of Wesley. And, and Whitfield, it's really interesting, at 4 a.m. every morning after this happened, he would be one hour in prayer, and then one hour in Bible study, and then he'd start preaching at 6 a.m. Wow. Whoa, I've just entered REM sleep at 6 a.m., I think. But... And he starts telling people about Jesus, 6 a.m., right? And, you know, that's when people were walking to work and, and doing their thing. And then one day, he kind of looks at all of these people walking around, and he says, you know what, this one-on-one -on -one stuff, I'm sorry, I got a message to preach. And on February 17, 1739, at the age of 24, he did something that nobody else had done up to that time. He decided to take his message to the streets. And he just began to do open-air preaching. Now, that may not sound that crazy to you, but for the Church of England, that was scandalous, profane. You did not do that. The church frowned on him. They wanted to excommunicate him. People didn't preach in public. But what Whitfield did, he went to Kingswood, the worst section of the worst part of that area, with coal miners, like rugged, just rough, blue-collar, you know, addicted, alcoholic coal miners, and he began to preach. Sober estimates tell us he preached a thousand times a year. Three times a day for 30 years. He preached more than he slept most days. Sober estimates, again, 18,000 sermons, 12,000 talks and exhortations. He crossed the Atlantic 13 times, shared the gospel with 10 million people on two continents, sparked the great awakening of the American colonies. And Benjamin Franklin, one of his uh, kind of homies back in the day, uh, Benjamin Franklin said he often addressed 30,000 people at a time with no amplification. Cross-eyed dude, younger, <laughs> right? Youngest of seven, weak composition, 
short. Go look at the pictures of jacked up haircut. All right, look at his hair. Next time you look a picture of Whitfield. Preaching to 30,000 people with no amplification three times a day. What happened to him? I don't know, but I do know that Peter and, and John waited and waited and waited and waited, and they were so hungry for God. And Whitfield was so hungry for God, and Wesley was so hungry for God that they just waited until they experienced more of his presence. And like reservoirs, they just it just poured out of them. Wesley did the same. The only difference with Wesley, Whitfield was kind of a one-man show. He was the first biggest celebrity in the colonies. He was right up there with Washington and, and well, not Washington, back in the day, whoever was popular back then. Um, but Wesley decided, I need to raise up an army of others. I'm not the communicator, Whitfield is. And so he began to raise up an army of hundreds and thousands of laos, laity, people, People, every ordinary, everyday ordinary people, they'd ride on horseback, circuit riders, we called them, and they would just preach the gospel. Listen to this quote by Wesley. Give me a hundred preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I don't care if they're clergymen or laymen, they alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of God of heaven on earth. And he didn't end up with a hundred, he ended up with thousands. Thousands of young men and women in their 20s or 30s, many of them unmarried, willing to sacrifice it all for the kingdom. They made $64 a year. Most pastors made seven times that amount. They traveled a two to four week circuit, 400 miles in circumference, ventured into unknown regions far from family. They were ridiculed, threatened, succumbed to sickness, accident. Most of them died young, but they were willing to go because they had a changed life and a contagious faith and God moved them on. It's amazing. Yeah. I won't go into Asbury right now because of time, but I can just keep going on and on. Asbury landed in the colonies one of four missionaries, a handful of people that grew to about 1,000, then 50,000, 500,000, 6 million people a few decades later. Hundreds, thousands of circuit riding, crazy, radical men and women riding around the countryside, proclaiming the gospel, is spilling out like a reservoir. And here's my question for you. How badly do you desire God? How hungry are you for God? What stinks about that question is I can't manufacture hunger in you. And honestly, I can't even manufacture hunger in me. You can lead a horse to water, right? But at the end of the day, my prayer for you, and I would encourage you as we get ready to close, that maybe your prayer is to come forward and say, hey, will you pray that God would stir up inside of me a hunger for him? I need a fresh hunger. I need a fresh feeling. I need God to do something new in me. Because here's the deal. 20 minutes a day, little you version here and there, praying over your meals, like that's not what happened here. That's right. You know, you can binge the Bible. <laughs> yes. You binge Netflix. That's right. Go for it. 30, 30, 30. Next episode, next episode. You know, you can binge the Bible. You can read the whole Gospel of Matthew in one sitting. You know, you can do that. You can pray for three hours at a time. 
You don't think you can? You can. The hunger for God, I'm not saying works. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, how bad do we want it? Listen to this quote. Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. Weak men create hard times. Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times, and good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times. Hard times then create strong men. Ladies, of course, this is men and women, and I look at the ladies in this group, the women, I think, man, you got some vibrant faith. Amen. But we're going into some hard times, I believe. Because I think we had some good times, and I think the good times created some weak people, honestly. And I think the weak people have created some hard times. And now in these hard times, we need some strong men and women willing to give it all. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. So you may not feel like a Wesley or a Whitfield or an Asbury. Honestly, that's not the point. The point is that people like James, I'm sorry, John and Peter, unschooled, ordinary men, waited. The Spirit of God showed up. How bad do you want it? God used Whitfield to usher in the first great awakening in 1730 to 1760. God used Asbury to usher in the second great awakening in 1790 to 1830. Man, we need a third great awakening. You think this has anything to do with like politics and presidents and changing a structure? This has everything to do with the Holy Spirit and His power. And so I close with a passage from Hebrews 12. The author tells all these stories of faith that are like ridiculously amazing. Abraham, Moses. He says to this ordinary church, these ordinary people, these Hebrews, he says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, Whitfield, Wesley, Asbury, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run. Run. I love it. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. It's our turn is what he's saying. Let's run. Let's go for it. Let's not fall into the trap of just everyday religion like Whitfield and the gang experienced. Let's actually go for it and seek God. So here's my prayer for you. And I'm going to ask you all to stand with me if you would. Go ahead and stand. Uh, prayer partners or prayer um, team, if you'd come forward. Here's my prayer for you. My prayer is that God would do something today um, in the sense of fill you with his power in a new way. Now, in my theological tradition, we call this the second work of grace. But here's what I mean by that. What I mean by that is there is a time in life, in my own life, I was a Christian. I followed Jesus. And if I can be honest, I had one foot in the world and I had one foot in the church. And he saved me from my sins. But I didn't fully understand everything he asked for me. I hadn't fully made him Lord. I didn't follow him in everything. I had a moment. I was 20 years old. I was driving back to college. And 
but I just had, I mean, God hit me. The Spirit of God hit me like a ton of bricks. He said, so half-hearted, one foot in the world, one foot in the church, I want all of you. I need you to surrender everything to me. Are you willing to do that? I started crying. I pulled over to the side of the road. I said, God, whatever you have for me, I'll do. And I guess what I want to invite you to as we close is if you would say in your heart, I don't feel like I'm all in. I feel like there's a part of my life that I'm holding back. And I don't feel like I'm fully surrendered. Then this is for you. If you're somebody you say, man, I'm, I'm not experiencing that kind of hunger right now. I feel a little lethargic, a little complacent. Hey, come forward and let them pray over you that God would fill you afresh and anew with new hunger, new fire. But Lord, I just pray in this moment that you would change our hearts, that you would give us a new hunger, that we would seek you with our whole heart. And Lord, that this would be a time for people to find healing and encouragement and renewal, that they would surrender, and God, that we would seek you with everything. We love you, in Jesus' name.